Many of us see society-wide problems as too big for us to make a difference. But those are sometimes the issues that are too important to avoid. How we can deal with the bigness of racism after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello and welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. In this episode, we welcome back our first three-time guest, Christine Jeske. She's here this time to talk with our producer, Jesse Koopman, about her recent anthropological study around racism in the church. Christine Jeske is an associate professor at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Before her work in academia, she spent a decade in microfinance, refugee settlement, community development, and teaching. She earned all of her degrees, including her PhD in cultural anthropology, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also the author of three books, including The Laziness Myth, which we talked to her about on an episode in February of 2021, which I recommend you check out if you didn't catch it when it aired. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Christine Jeske and Jesse Koopman. So Christine, welcome to Upwards. Thanks. So good to be here again. It is great. Uh, so Christine and I just met today, but I've seen some of her work and I've read some of her work and I am elated uh, to get a chance to talk to you about such a great topic as, as racial justice. Yeah, likewise. So I want to just kick it off with how did this get to be something for you? Like, wh where did this spur for you? Did, what, did you have a specific experience or story that led you down this path? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I, most of what I do is social science research where mm -hmm. I'm telling stories of other people. But what's unique about this research is that it's, I'm researching people in a population that I also fit into. So it's autoethnography. And so um, I thought I'd start out with some stories that for me, I, I chose these because I think they, they fit into patterns that I saw with people I've interviewed too. So I was uh, a university student here at University of Wisconsin where um, Upwards is recorded. And mm -hmm. I, uh, I'll describe three experiences that all were pretty transformative yeah, to great. me together. So uh, the first was, so I grew up in the city of Whitewater, which I like to tell people was very white. <laughs> and uh, so the people that I knew growing up were almost all white. And the people of color that I knew weren't talking about their racial or ethnic identity. I wasn't processing that or thinking about it consciously very much. And uh, I have a cousin. Well, so I have an uncle who is uh, African. Mm -hmm. And so I have a cousin who's mixed race, African-American. And um, when I was in college, um, really tragically, her boyfriend and the father of her child was shot and killed. Goodness. And um, so that was a moment where I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I would say that was a, an awakening to something I should have known about before, but because of the way society works, I didn't know really how serious it was. Um, so uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to ask you to dig into this too yeah. deeply, but um, so they, they were killed. Was that about their race or how did? So what I think I knew inherently was, um, so this boyfriend was black and I didn't know a lot about 
the situation or how it came about. But I knew enough to know that there was something socially bigger than just uh, an accidental shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, this was part of a pattern that was big and I couldn't ignore it. And I didn't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I know the way I was raised with, uh, you know, biologically a cousin to my cousin, my upbringing and her upbringing just didn't match. And there was yeah. other things that were sort of coming clear in the ways that we had been surrounded by circumstances in our lives that just were different. And I needed to know why. Yeah. So that was when, uh, in part because of that, but also just kind of because I was a university student, I took a class called African Storyteller, which is super famous at the university. Mm -hmm. I took it because it was famous. I really didn't think I was interested in Africa. But that class started introducing me to the history of colonialism, the history of race and racism, uh, and that that continued today and that it impacted my surroundings. And uh, that sent me into wanting to take another class on African history and then classes on Latin American economics and malnutrition and world hunger and these classes on injustice. So here at the UW was a place where I was kind of exploring the bigness of race and racism and injustice. That was happening. And then the third uh, story is a little different. So I had a good friend uh, who had gone to the Dominican Republic. She's also white, as I am. And she'd gone to the Dominican Republic for a summer. And she came back and she met a family from the Dominican Republic here in Madison. And just out of fun boldness, called them up and had a conversation with them and was invited over to their house. And she's like, please come with me. And I came and this family invited us into their house and invited us to come to their church. And they found out I played piano and they invited me to play piano. And my Spanish was not great. And my (laughs) piano playing in Mm -hmm. uh, Latino, Latino music style was not great. So many things I did were not great, but Mm -hmm. I was just like warmly welcomed into that church. And I ended up playing piano for that church and a Korean American church also in my college years. And it was just this repeated experience of being inadequate, but welcomed. Oh, what a beautiful story. Yeah. What a beautiful story. So yeah, I do want to call attention to that. Like we are two white people uh, that live in Madison area. Yeah. And we're talking about racial justice today. Uh, So we're both very passionate people about that. And we've talked a little bit beforehand and we've kind of agreed that like, this is something we really want to call attention Mm to. It's, it's, we're not going to have everything right, right? Mm. Do you want to speak to that point a little bit? What What do you think gives you the opportunity as a researcher on this, as a cultural anthropologist, uh, as somebody who is just a person who's passionate about it? Um, uh, and we're giving you a platform to speak on it, obviously. But why do you think you're well-suited for this discussion? Yeah. So first of all, I'll just say that in conversations and learning about race, obviously we need to be forefronting people of color and listening and learning from their experiences um, because they're the ones who are most affected by this. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can't walk away from it in the same way that white people do. Uh, And that's something that came up over and over in my research is why, why would white people stay? Because they can walk away from it. And a lot of white people have these experiences of realizing I could walk away. Yeah. Um, But to not walk away (laughs) is a choice. Uh, And I wanted to know how do people come to that choice? Because it's important. Uh, Racism is 
a problem for all of us. And it's especially important for white people to engage and figure out what our roles are in this because we need to be a part of the change. Yeah, so that's a great transition point to where I really wanted to go. So we welcomed Christine here a couple weeks ago for a talk to a a private audience. And uh, she really engaged with us on a, a few key points about where this process goes and some of the research you've been uh, digging into around this. Do you want to just fill us in for starters on your uh, research a little bit? Tell us about what you've been doing, how it's been conducted, and what you're learning through it. Yeah. So I am a cultural anthropologist, which you may not know any of because there's not a whole lot of us in the world. (laughs) Um, It's something I fell into later in life in my 30s, discovered what it was, and it started answering a lot of the questions that I was asking, or at least gave me ways to continue asking those questions. And what anthropologists do for research often involves uh, qualitative research that is very um, participant involved. Mm -hmm. So I uh, am doing this research mostly around Madison, which is where my home is and where I've lived for over 15 years. And it's, uh, it's not about having large numbers of people involved in it, but rather greater depth in the numbers of people that are engaged in the research. So I, over the last year plus, have been interviewing a total of 70 people. Of those, uh, 30 were people of color, 40 were white people. And the process I went through, so what I wanted to know Mm -hmm. is how do white people stay engaged with racial justice efforts long term? Because so often they start, they're interested, they have a collision moment, something like mm-hmm. what happened with me seeing my um, cousin go through this horrible experience and our family yeah. going through this experience of um, seeing someone killed um, and and wanting to know what keeps us in that journey. So, so I interviewed 70 people and the process was I, I started with people of color who are faith leaders. And specifically, I wanted to know white Christians, <laughs> because Christians are actually, I can tell more about this, but Christians are often some of the worst uh, when it comes to white Christians and in terms of being engaged in racial justice. So started with 30 people of color who were faith leaders, asked them what racial justice looks like to you. Um, how do you stay in the journey? How do you find hope in that? And then who would you recommend among white people that I interviewed? Mm-hmm and then found 40 white people out of their recommendations. Awesome. So I want to pause on something you said there because it really caught me off guard. It caught me off guard when you presented it the other day too, is to hear that white Christians are some of the worst offenders amongst this. So I'd be really curious as to, one, here's some more of the data specifically if you have that handy for us. And then two, can you, I don't want you to theorize, but can, can you tell us maybe some of the reasons why others have attributed that issue existing greater in that community? So the nature of my research was that I was researching white Christians who were recommended as people who had a long-term interest in racial justice. Gotcha. But I want to be clear, they are not the norm. (laughs) They are strange. (laughs) They are not fitting the pattern. They're kind of outliers. And uh, so what what is more common statistically in the United States is that white Christians are less involved than other Christians and that of people of other races. So, um, yeah, did, numbers, I, did I remember the, uh, the chart, right? When you showed it the other week that white evangelicals are even more so than mainline Christians. Yeah. 
So white evangelicals, here's one survey that was done in 2019 by the Barna Research Survey of over 2,000 people, uh, found that white evangelicals were only 28% of them uh, agreed that black people are generally treated less fairly than white people in regard to hiring, pay, and promotions. 28% as compared to among black Christians, 84%. So dramatically different. But that's not, it's not just evangelicals. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes people are like, well, I'm not evangelical, so <laughs> I'm off the hook. But no, the average, mm -hmm. uh, just white Christians. So here's another number from 2020. Only 9% of white Christians said that they were very motivated to address racial injustice in our society. 9% is half as many as were white people more broadly. So being Christian made you half as likely. And it was one-fifth as likely as Black Christians. Oh, goodness. This is from a book called Faithful Anti-Racism by Chad Brennan and Christina Edmondson. Yeah. So one thing I, I just want to, I know we're going to a wide audience with lots of different perspectives here. And some people will probably be astonished by some of that. Some people will probably be like, that seems actually low to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but one thing I want to ask is, so we, you and I, we've talked and we know from our perspectives that it is an issue. It's not something that we can just say, well, that's their opinion and that's fine. But there are concrete, verifiable pieces of data that we can use to say, no, this is an issue. Is there a source that you would point those people to saying it's not an issue? It's not true. There isn't this big disparity. And it's it's a it's a cultural lie that's being perpetrated. Is there a, is there a piece of data or a, uh, a factual statement that you can present to people in that situation to help open their eyes to see what is going on? That racism is real? Yes. Uh, a piece of data? I mean, I, I feel like there's so many. And there's this term I've heard of epistemological ignorance. It's mm -hmm. a fancy term to say a way of choosing what you know is true or selecting what you know is true that selectively uses ignorance. And I want to just be clear that... Uh, when people are coming to a conclusion that racism might not be true, they're ignoring so much evidence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> um, you know, talk to people about their experiences. So there's so many places you could go to, but here's one. So median wealth for black versus white households mm -hmm. in the United States. Uh, in 2019, white households had a median wealth that was 7.8 times higher than black households. Um, so that's a starting point. But you can look at income differences. You can look at unemployment. You can look at health outcomes. You can look at educational outcomes. Mm -hmm. You can look at everything from birth to death. The statistics are not hard to find. I think it's really more about are people willing to see those statistics for what they are? And what kind of narratives are they using to make sense of those statistics? Yeah. So one of the things that you talked about in your your message to the group that was here a couple of weeks ago that I, I was really excited to see you present on, and I want to dig in further to today, is this notion of collisions. So you just presented a, a, a set of statistics that maybe people that are listening to this or this episode gets shared with others that have not heard these things. And maybe they hear about in the news the, the racial disparities and things and they get annoyed by it because they don't understand the depth and ramifications of these things they have not had this collision experience with the injustice 
So I don't know if that could be a collision, but maybe that's a, at least, if nothing else, a good segue into the discussion mm -hmm. of collisions. So let's talk about collisions. What, what, tell me about the different forms that collisions really come in for white Christians in your, in your research. What are these people saying, I experienced colliding with racial injustice? Yeah, and I use this term to describe, so a lot of what I was analyzing was white people just telling their stories. And I would ask questions like, fill in the blank, I would not be committed to racial justice today if not for blank, and analyzing what kinds of stories are they telling. And there's a kind of story that comes up for a lot of people where you just suddenly see something. <laughs> and the word woke, I think, is kind of overused and controversial and stuff today. Mm -hmm. But before it was a word woke, people were talking about this sense of like just opening their eyes to see something they hadn't seen. And um, a couple kinds of those maybe. So there's collisions that I think involve just seeing the non-normalcy of mm -hmm. a white person's life. And that could be entering into a culturally different place like me being a part of a Hispanic church in college and realizing, oh my goodness, things that I took for granted about my life are not normal because whiteness is normalized. We're taught to just think white people do the normal thing. Yeah, and I just want to confess right here, that's a word that we're all going to struggle with in this context is yeah. normal. What is normal? Yeah. Like we talk about normalization or something, somebody's experience not being normal. Mm -hmm. It may not be normal to us. That doesn't mean it's not normal. Yeah. Like these are commonplace experiences <laughs> for many, many, many people. Yeah, right. But they're not normal to us. Right. As white or people. normal to person X or Y. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of seeing the non-normalcy of your own cultural and racial experience. And then uh, there's the collision with injustice that happens for a lot of people too. And that could be what's called approximate experience where I'm a white person, but I'm a white woman. And so for me, sometimes experiencing gender discrimination or gender inequity mm -hmm. is a way that I start to realize, oh, that's what it's like to yeah. feel inequity. And <laughs> that sort of like emotional, visceral, personal response that comes from that. And people would have that happen with class-based inequity. One person even told a story about just being bullied and realizing what it felt like to be an outsider in a group. And so that sometimes gives people this sort of proximate experience to say, oh, mm -hmm. that's what racism is like. But a lot of times it is catastrophic events and I, especially catastrophic events that are personal in nature where you know somebody hurt by it. I think for me personally, one of the things that I, I'd be willing to share in this context with, with our audience is certainly that. I've experienced injustice personally and I've experienced hardship personally, but what I never really connected until I got into like a really serious relationship with a friend who is African-American or black and they were able to help me understand that that's, that was your experience in that setting, but that's the experience I have every day. Yeah. And right. that, that really hit me on a level that I had never conceived of before that like I assumed that people do experience racism, like it made sense to me because I understood the statistics and I've been aware of these things, but I'd never, I'd never occurred to me that, no, they go to the store and they're treated differently. Yeah. Then they go to the next store and they're treated differently. Then they go to the doctor's office and they're treated differently. And then they take their kids to school and they're treated differently. And I like, that's so hard for me to wrap my head around. Talk about the normalcy factor. Like 
mind blowing. Like I'm sitting here like with an astonished look on my face. Yeah. Uh, like still to this day, like while well, I can understand it in part because I've experienced and we have all experienced injustice in our lives in some level, like to understand it on that level is something I, I know I'll never be able to experience. And that's hard for me to wrap my head around. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to remember that when a person is new to this kind of collision experience as a white person, sometimes the ways that they're processing that are going to be very different than people of color might be experiencing that same event. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a quote. I'll just read you because I have so many beautiful quotes <laughs> from people that I've interviewed. And that's why I want to write about this because I'm so excited to share the joy of in-depth interviews, right? Yeah. What other people say. So here's from a woman who in college went to a workshop that was learning about whiteness. And she said, I remember going to that session and like everything that they had shared was new information to me. Like I had never heard of white privilege before. I mean, I didn't have friends of color and I had kind of thought that racism was dead. Like I just didn't really think that existed anymore. Like there was slavery and dot, dot, dot and Martin Luther King and we're all good was my understanding of racism. It's really sad how many gaps there were in my knowledge and understanding of history. So I remember going to this and just being like, what? And it shook me to my core. And after that session, I just went back to my room and just cried for hours, just kind of processing that my experience in the world was very much not everybody's experience in the world. And she finished up this quote saying, which feels so ignorant and naive now, but that's where I was mm -hmm. coming from. And I, l I love the honesty in that. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful that she could share that. Right. And it, she looks back on it now and realizes it was naive and she should have known sooner, but she didn't because that's the social world she was raised in. Yeah. Like myself, she was raised in a predominantly white space and at some point faced that for the first time. You compare that to, I would sometimes ask people of color in my interviews too, a similar question of like, I would not be committed to racial justice today if not for what? Mm -hmm. And, um, it, no one is born understanding the racial system that we are <laughs> mm -hmm. in, but usually people of color, right. <laughs> but usually people of color have to encounter that much earlier. And one answer I got from somebody to that question was just, well, I was born. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's often not a, uh, even a conscious awareness of those first moments of when you first encountered a collision of some sort of realizing there's racial injustice in the world for people of color. Some people do, but not everybody does. So, yeah, so white people are often processing it when they're older and they're more struck by it because it's it's new and, and shocking in a different way. Yeah. So here's a question that I didn't think about in advance. So I'm sorry, sorry if this comes as a surprise to you, but like if you were talking to somebody on the street who finds out what you do and they're like, I don't know what a racial collision looks like. We're experiencing this injustice. Like, how do I experience a collision? What's mm. the ideal way to find this collision and encounter this so that I can learn? What would you tell them? Yeah. Like, how would how would you encourage them to experience this and collide yeah. with racial injustice? Thanks for asking that. That's such an astute question because one thing I've realized in starting to talk about this research with people is that we often want to learn about what to do about racism. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, how do I just go out as an individual and have the experience or do the thing that will make me a different kind of a person where now I'm not a racist, I'm an anti-racist, right? <laughs> you want to mm -hmm. just like orchestrate that transformation in yourself by walking through a few simple steps. And what I'm surprised in some ways to realize is that so much more of this is actually things that happen to us as human beings. Hmm. And 
in some ways, it doesn't surprise me because I do social science research. And so I'm constantly learning about how, you know what, our social systems affect us so much. Yeah. And we go through life, especially white people, go through life thinking I'm an individual with all this agency. I have choices. <laughs> I construct my world around me. But a lot of things just happen to us. Yeah. So in answer to your question, definitely don't go out there and try to be like, oh my goodness, I can't wait for a horrible thing to happen. So I'll wake <laughs> up like, no, yeah, I'm don't. not condoning that either. I just want to be clear. I'm <laughs> not condoning that. That's not either. what we're going for here. But I think like some of what it can be is putting yourself, you can put yourself in a place to be confronted by things. And that could be watching a movie that could be mm -hmm. reading about history. So yeah. We talked about collisions, but I really don't think collisions necessarily are the first step for everybody. I think there's three other parts to the journey. And one of them is exploring the bigness, I call it. And mm -hmm. that's like me taking these classes in college. And I teach these kinds of classes all the time. And I see this happen that sometimes students are just like, oh, I'm just taking in information, taking in information. And then there's something that just like sinks in all of a sudden. And it's like a little explosion goes off. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, this matters so much. Suddenly it just matters to you personally. It matters to your, um, your community, the people that you identify with. It matters to you spiritually. It matters in a different way. So I think what you can do is put yourself in a place of exploring and learning. I think that's great advice for pretty much everybody in all contexts, but certainly for this one. Yeah. And uh, I... I want to just follow up with the most obvious question in the world to me, but maybe this isn't obvious to, to everyone. So I'll just come out with it. Uh, how do you go with that? If that's the next step, where do I go? How, how do I get that knowledge? How do I get that information? Where, where do I, what resources do I pull from? And Yeah. Well, there are many. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that's good. So there are options. Yeah. That, that's a positive. I guess because I'm sitting here in an Upwards podcast interview, I would say I know there are events and there are podcasts that have been done by Upwards that mm -hmm. would be a good starting place. Uh, Jamar Tisby has come to Madison and has an excellent couple of books on this topic. I mean, part of why I hesitate to answer is because I think people just need to hear different things at different times. Mm -hmm. This is a journey and there's just a lot of steps to it. So there's some people who need to just know that there are cultural differences in the world. There's some people who need to know the history behind it. There's people who need to know um, how racism plays out today. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you know a lot about anti-Black racism, but you don't know a lot about anti-Asian racism. Mm. And then, of course, people of color listening to this. Uh, there's a whole different kind of resources about processing your own experience of racial trauma. Um, multiracial experiences. Uh, there's some really great specific writing on multiracial experiences. So um, I, I think there's so many places to begin. I think yeah. starting with what is something I don't know and knowing that you're not going to get it all from one book, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so more so making a practice of continually having that just be something like, you know, what am I, what am I learning about right now? If I'm not learning anything about this right now, maybe yeah. try something new and just think, keep it going. I think, so relating that back to the collision experience, I think the, one of the cool things about the collision experience is it's inherently humbling, right? Mm -hmm. Like we realize we're now learning something we didn't know previously. And something I, I try to think about when I'm going through an experience like that is, okay, if I just learned something huge that I did not understand, how much more 
is there for me to learn and understand yeah. that's going on here that I'm unaware of. Yeah. So yeah, talk about acknowledging the bigness. I think having that moment of humility needs to stay in a humble position and posture mm-hmm. where we ask God, we ask our surroundings, our, our, our people around us to help us learn and grow. Yeah. And I think one of the phrases that stands out to me from an interview with someone about that process of exploring the bigness is she said it was asking a lot of why. So, you know, you can see a bunch of stats and just say, oh, okay, I think I know why that is and dismiss it. And sometimes the the why response that white people have been taught to respond to statistics of inequality with is uh, what's kind of the title of my other book that I've written recently, <laughs> which is called The Laziness Myth. You know, mm-hmm. um, sometimes we're interpreting, you, you can see all the stats of inequality that there are out there and you could still say, well, that's just because some people work harder than others. Some people are lazy. Um, well, you couldn't see all the stats because some of the stats would tell you that's not the case. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but a lot of times people dismiss it with the narratives that they have. And so taking time to ask why and finding good research telling why these outcomes are happening is important too. Yeah. So say now we've had this collision experience. And we're acknowledging the bigness. Something that you talked about uh, uh, the other week was really about the hurdles that come up next. Like that's where the journey stops for a lot of people is they have this experience. They recognize, wow, this is so big. And I mean, I can think of lots of different reasons why anybody in any situation, whether it be racial justice or anything, if you have this profound experience and all of a sudden you realize it's this massive issue, the first response is to check out. It's just too much. Yeah. What, what can I do about it? And it, I could do all this stuff. But what, what difference is it going to make? So like, how do you deal with that? How, how do you, have you seen in your research? How have others dealt with that? Yeah. And how, how have you seen it, them live in that struggle? How have you seen them overcome that struggle? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I realized really early on in this research was that a lot of white people who'd been in this for years and decades were saying one of the most significant things they saw change over those decades was how they hoped. And they'd look back and say, I started this with such a naive hope. I thought this would be an easy process. You know, Mm -hmm. something terrible happened. I was like, here I am. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to respond. Maybe even a big change, like moving into a different neighborhood, getting a different kind of a job. Mm -hmm. But thinking it would be easy. And so, yeah, somewhere along this process of collisions and seeing the bigness, often people are just having that naive hope stripped away. And it's this painful, emotional, gut-wrenching process Mm -hmm. of being like, oh my goodness, I failed again. I thought I was good at this and I'm really not. (laughs) Or like, I just didn't know that. Or that hurts and it's emotionally draining. Or that happened again and again and again and seeing how deep the history is. So, um, I, I think that what happens is you have to build a different kind of hope. And this is one of the questions that I ask everybody in the research is how they hope. And not just what you hope for, but like what are kind of adverbs that describe your hope? Mm-hmm. Do you hope resiliently? Do you hope like kind of just by the skin of your teeth? <laughs> uh, somebody called it a, a scratchy, bleedy hope. <laughs> Ooh. 
Isn't that great? There's an um, image. Yeah. And so what I was struck by, and actually a lot of white people voice this also, is that they realized people of color who have been working for racial justice for a very long time often have a different kind of hope that is resilient and it's not about simple answers and it it's a hope that's like i might not see this in my lifetime mm-hmm. and it might not be that i make any progress or see progress uh it's often a hope in some kind of like from the outside like god's gonna have to step in because we're gonna need a miracle here <laughs> this is not gonna be an easy <laughs> an easy thing mm-hmm. um but the struggle, like just being a part of the struggle on and on in the struggle is just a part of what what you do as a human being. It's part of who you are. So that's part of the transformation. I forgot yeah. what your answer, no, what your question so, was. So a wonderful answer. answer. I'm struck by the bigness all of a sudden, honestly. <laughs> uh, as you say that, like, I mean, it's, I'm already struck by the bigness. And then when I hear about the the process to continue on with it, I'm like, well, this is even bigger than I thought it was. So like it's it's a process that uh, we're both uh, we were talking earlier we're both on this journey ourselves and I think it's it's a beautiful thing that we can participate in conversation and share some of that process with with our audience but it's also one of those things where I I'm still learning how to hope in this and I would love to hear about some of the the research that you've done in, in terms of how people have endured in that so talking about their their types of hope and and so forth but uh without getting too in-depth into any specific story necessarily, unless you want to share a specific story, how are people enduring that hope? How are they existing in that space of like, I'm trying and I can do everything I can do, but I know I can't solve this. Yeah. So we all want to know, isn't it? Yeah. And I see it all over, even literature on this in secular conversations is like, is it okay to have hope for racial justice? Because the wrong kind of hope can actually be damaging. You know, when we tell people, oh, it's going to be fine. It's okay. It's always turned out well for white people before. <laughs> so surely oh, it'll work out for everybody, yeah. you know? And so I think it's so important to really examine how we hope. One time when this hit me personally, I was living in South Africa and we were working at a seminary and my husband and I, and the seminary had lost a lot of its funding and it was becoming clear that the seminary was probably going to close And so we had these students that we're working with who are from all over the continent of Africa. And a lot of them had worked for years or decades to save up money for their education. And even still, a lot of them had scholarships to be able to be there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them had found out that their scholarships were discontinued for lack of money. Just horribly sad to watch. Yeah. And they didn't know if they could finish their education and their families had sacrificed so much for them to travel to different countries to be there. So I remember being at this prayer meeting and in Africa, a lot of people, or a lot of times when we pray in churches, everybody's praying simultaneously, Mm -hmm. speaking to the Lord. And I was there in this room and I think I was the only white person in the room, um, people from different countries, but all over Africa and, and people are praying. And I just remember hitting this point where like, I had my eyes closed and I just was like, I don't have any words left. I don't even know what to say. Like, I don't know what to ask the Lord anymore. I just have run out. And it, and then just sitting there listening to what other people were saying. And it struck me that for so many of them, their whole life had been learning how to have resilient hope. And in scripture, hope is not 
something that people who have easy lives have mm-hmm. more easily. <laughs> it's something that comes out of mm-hmm. suffering and perseverance. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to learn how to hope, we should think about how we come through suffering. Yeah. And uh, and I just didn't have the life experience necessarily to, to be having a whole lot of really resilient hope at that time in my life. I, you know, I had some, but but realizing I was learning it from the people around me who just could keep praying and praying when I had run out. And it always strikes me as so kind of misguided when you have like short-term mission trips of white North Americans who are like calling their organizations things like bringing hope or (laughs) bearers of hope or things like that. And Mm -hmm. I think like we do share hope with other people. Everybody does. Like it's not like any Christian doesn't have access to hope, but I think sometimes we have a really naive picture of what hope is. And so there's that personal experience, but I could talk more if you'd like about kind of how I saw this play out in research also and how it well, why don't you give us one example of how you've seen it play out in research? I think that'd be really helpful for our audience to hear another example of of someone uh, trying their best to, after they've had this collision experience, after they've acknowledged the bigness, that's really pursued continuing on with it in hope. So I've talked about two elements of transformation. We talked a lot about collision and mm-hmm. we talked about uh, seeing the bigness, mm-hmm. or exploring the bigness. The third element that really took me by surprise in this research, and I was hesitant to even sort of name it. And I just, as it started emerging in the data, I just kept going back to people, and especially people of color, and saying like, "Am I on track? Is this okay?" And um, and I would describe that third element of people's journeys as responding to grace, hmm. and. The reason I'm hesitant to talk about it is that often people of color have been sort of told to extend more grace. Just, you know, just forgive. Just, you know, this is not a big deal. It's okay. Um, You know, let white people off the hook so that they can just be your friend. And that's really problematic and (laughs) has not worked well in a lot of cases. So, Mm -hmm. but I, what strikes me is that's not grace. Grace cannot be demanded of people. Mm-hmm. Free grace is a gift that is given by a free person. And so um, in the way that Christians understand grace from God as a free, incongruous gift that like, wow, I didn't deserve it. <laughs> uh, we understand our relationships in those terms too, that like as Christians— Part of being a Christian is extending grace to other people that is incongruous and undeserved um, and receiving that in like in perpetuity. Like that's what we do. That's how our communities work is Mm -hmm. giving and receiving in grace. And one thing that I just have recently been learning about theology of grace. I'm not a theologian, but there's this great book, Paul and the Gift by Barclay that my dear theologian friends appointed me to. And what's so cool about it is he says, grace is not something that you take as a free gift and walk away. Mm -hmm. There has to be a response to it. Mm. If you've received it, you respond and you're kind of tied to that relationship. It doesn't end the relationship. It keeps you in a relationship. And so that concept, I think is really important to 
kind of the continuity of this. Like you can have your collision moment and walk away. Mm-hmm. You can have your learning about the big- bigness process and walk away. But what I heard from people who stayed in the journey was these stories of realizing I am part of a community. And it wasn't even necessarily a tight-knit community, but just mm-hmm. like I am a human being in the human community, which gives me a responsibility to continue to respond. You've asked me for a story and I I gave more preface to that than maybe you expected. But let me tell you about uh, a friend of mine who was going back to that story of being invited into this Hispanic church. Mm -hmm. This was my friend who was a white Christian with me in college and where she ended up. So she ended up spending more time internationally, but she's been living in the United States for most of her adult life and just being kind of an ordinary person. You know, she's not like... Um, you know, showing up at every protest necessarily, but it's part of who she is. And I interviewed one of our mutual friends, one of these long-term friends of ours from this Mm -hmm. Hispanic church about her. And the description this mutual friend, this Hispanic woman said about about this white friend is, it's who she is. It's just part of who she is. And and when I talked to this friend, uh, the white friend about it, you know, she talks about how She's learned to hope through the years in different ways because it's been so, so hard at so many times. She talked about she's part of a very intentionally multiracial church. And she's talked about wanting to leave that church at times and knowing other people who have left and people who walk away when it's hard. So here's a quote I can read yeah. from her yeah, about sure. where she's at still. She says, there's something that Christianity offers in the sense that it's not all about us. We respond to God's goodness and movement in the world. So everything we do is a response to something that's already happening that's bigger than us. I'll come back to more of what she said, but I'll just interject to say um, it's that responding. And so again, like what can white people do about this? I wouldn't recommend like, oh, white people, you have to go out there and ask some person of color to give you some more grace. Like, you know, tell them to forgive you. But rather it's like looking around and saying like, oh my goodness, I have been extended so much from God, from people around me, from people of color. The fact that I am a white person who lives on land that was taken from Native American people. What did I inherit? Mm -hmm. Ask yourself, what did you inherit? Mm -hmm. How are you going to respond to that? It's there already. (laughs) Um, Here's more of what she says. So she said, People have been living in my community a long time before me and will continue to be there a long time after I'm gone. I am a part of a larger hope. It's not actually about me. I am responsible for my actions and reflecting the goodness of God in the world. But look, the track record isn't good. If I have to trust in humanity to do the thing, I'm not voting on humanity. (laughs) You're part of the bucket brigade and you're important, but we're not that important. Um, You know, so kind of having a humility about what you can actually accomplish in the world is actually freeing. And there's joy in that. There's the ability to lament in that. So the practices that come out of that are just, I think, the whole emotional spectrum. Being able to be deeply sad and deeply joyful uh, because it's all there. Like just knowing it's all going to be happening in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And and we don't have a neat kind of bow we put on the end and say like, oh, we tied it all up and we're done. Because then we'd be done with relationship. We wouldn't need relationship anymore. Absolutely. It actually reminds me a lot of a, a parable that I love. Yeah. Uh, there was this uh, young boy walking down the beach at the ocean, and 
he was walking along the beach and he would grab a starfish as they'd all washed up on shore and they were drying out in the sun and they were all going to die. And as he would walk, he'd pick up one and throw it in the ocean. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of these starfish. And this, this elderly gentleman walks up to the little boy and says, what difference are you making? Why do you even bother? And the little boy says, it matters to that starfish. Yeah. And I'll and, build on that and say also, you know, great, make it a difference for the starfish, but also like, let's get a team of us and get a machine that'll pick up all the starfish together, you know? So I think like we can work at an individual level, but also mm -hmm. thinking, you know, the people who are at this long term realize it's also about changing bigger systems around us. Yeah. And when we get people together in relationship, it's not just so that we can sit around and have a good time together. It's partly that, but it's also because together through solidarity and uh, community, we can have a bigger effect to change big things. So, yeah. Yeah. I just want to call attention to one more thing before we start wrapping up here. And that's this whole notion of, of grace and knowing that in the process that we're in, I mean, it's something that I've struggled immensely with is I make mistakes, mm -hmm. but the only way I'm going to continue growing and learning and moving forward in the process is by making mistakes and getting corrected and learning new things. And there have been times in the process and the journey that I've just wanted to keep my mouth shut and avoid it because I was so afraid of making mistakes or offending someone that I just checked out of the process. Mm -hmm. Now I can talk about how I've gone back into it and so forth, but I'd, I'd be more curious to hear about the larger scale of that with your research and, and how you how you've seen people address that on a larger scale than just my story. Yeah. White people who have been at this for a long time have gone through those moments. And there's a certain sense of like, I just need to get over myself. Um, I think everybody I talked to who's been at this for a long time could probably tell a story of having to be confronted about something they did wrong. And there's some, there's always emotions tied to that. You know, yeah. we've, feel like we're bad people and we don't like that. <laughs> Nobody wants to think that you're a bad person. We always want to go through life thinking we get everything right, but we don't. Uh, so a couple of things I think I'd give for people as advice at that point are one, not making it into shame, not mm -hmm. thinking I'm a bad person inherently and I will always be a bad person, but remembering I did something wrong and I can change and do something different in the future. Also not thinking I didn't intend to do something wrong. And mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter being focused on the impact rather than the intent, <laughs> rather than the intent is a, a phrase often used in diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And there's a reason for it because it, it works well is to step back and, and question if you're thinking like as a white person, like, oh, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. It's fine. No, <laughs> the impact was bad. Uh, so it, own that and change it. Um, I think we need to create a culture of apology so that a culture of grace can flourish in our organizations. I think sometimes people want the grace to come first, but mm -hmm. um, creating norms of it's going to need to happen that there are apologies and those apologies need to be genuine and they need to be tied to like, I am actually going to do something to rectify yeah, this repentance. I mean, we talk about that right. in the Christian faith all the time. Like yeah healing and grace come through repentance. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, it's too bad that happened and too bad I did it, but like I'm going to turn and do something different, right? It's repentance. So um, so here's a quote from a black man that explained this so well, I think. 
he said uh, he's talking about the reality of injustice and so many experiences along these lines. And he says, why should I have to forgive them? He's talking about white people have done harmful things. Like, why? Here's this quote going on. They've done this, this and that. That's wrong, whatever. And it's all true, 100 percent. That's true. Systemic racism, divided families, slavery. You can't deny it. But as my faith would tell me, and notice here he's talking specifically to Christians. I want to be clear, like this is not necessarily going to make sense to non-Christians. This is Mm -hmm. me speaking. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But he goes on, he analyzes it from his own faith perspective. He says this. There's been sin since Adam and Eve. There has been sin since the beginning. There is sin. There's always going to be sin. Our call as Christians is to make sure that we step above that and forgive even when we don't want to forgive. Or what's the point of forgiving if anyone can forgive? Our grace, if we understand that this is a battle, a spiritual battle of what humanity should be, then we have to give grace. Or we can mimic other countries who have been fighting wars for thousands, like hundreds and hundreds of years, because then where does it stop? Where does the pain stop? How do you grow? And if our thing is reconciliation to Jesus and reconciliation to the Father, and that's through unity, that's through love, the only way we can do that is by giving grace. And that's forgiveness for others. That's forgiveness for ourselves. So there's lots of things people have to give forgiveness to, but grace has to be the core of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's hope in that. People just inevitably started talking about grace and started talking about mm-hmm. hope together because they go hand in hand. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful place to wrap up. Christine, this has been wonderful. I'm so appreciative of your time and the work that you've been putting into this and sharing your expertise and experience with us today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.